This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Body of Evidence, where I share stories of crimes that were solved and the perpetrators convicted even when the victim's body was never found. In this last episode, I'll detail the story of two women both murdered, or believed to have been murdered, by the same man. Both had thought they'd met the man of their dreams and married him, but would later find themselves living a nightmare with an abusive, possessive, controlling, and cruel husband. Both would end the relationship only to find that the real nightmare was just beginning. One would be found dead under mysterious circumstances, the other would go missing, never to be seen again. It would appear that Drew Peterson would get away with murder twice, but would ultimately be brought to justice due to a surprising twist. This is Chapter 3 of Body of Evidence, The Disappearance of Stacy Peterson. Stacy Ann Kale's life was marked by tragedy even before she was born. Her early years would prove to be no less marked by a continued set of losses for which there seemed to be no explicable reason. Born on January 20, 1984, Stacy's mother, Christy Marie Kales, would be eight months pregnant with her when she would lose her first child in a tragic house fire. Her older sister, Jessica, whom Stacy would never know, died at just two years old before she could be rescued when the Kales' home caught on fire. Just weeks later, Stacy was born. It can only be imagined what the mood was around the newborn's birth while her parents were still grieving their toddler's death. Anthony and Christy Kales would have another daughter just a few years later, but tragically, that child, Lacey, would die as an infant from sudden infant death syndrome, adding even more grief and loss to the Kales family. Stacy grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, Illinois. The family struggled financially, which caused them to move often to find work or affordable housing. Stacy, her brother Yelton, and sister Cassandra had difficulty putting down roots as a result. Stacy and Cassandra would become especially close, always relying on one another for someone to talk to and confide in. This would become especially important when their parents split up. Anthony and Christy Kales divorced in 1990 when Stacy was just six years old. The children were bounced around, staying with their father most of the time, who was granted legal custody. In 1998, Stacy's mother went missing. Christy Kells would suffer from depression after losing two of her children so tragically. Both she and Anthony had trouble with drugs and alcohol and domestic violence in the Kells' home was reported. After the divorce, Christy Kells would be hospitalized for psychiatric issues more than once and had several minor run-ins with the law as well. On March 11, 1998, Christy Kells was last seen in Blue Island, Illinois. Some would say she left her home to visit a friend, but other accounts say she was on her way to attend church. All that is known for sure is that Christy was last seen around 4.30 p.m. that day and never heard from again. Christy would sometimes drop out of sight for weeks without calling her family or friends, but after several months with no word, some suspected foul play was involved. Her friends pointed to Christie's live-in boyfriend as responsible. However, he was not named as a suspect by police, and her disappearance was never solved. 
Stacy had just turned 14 when her mother disappeared. By the time she was in high school, Stacy was living in Bolingbrook, Illinois. After graduation, Stacy enrolled in Joliet Junior College to pursue a degree in nursing. She was working her way through college by selling Avon products and was also hired at the Spring Hill Suites Hotel as a night shift desk clerk. It was while working here in 2001 that 17-year-old Stacy met Drew Walter Peterson. He was a police officer for the Bolingbrook Police Department and also worked the night shift. His patrol partner was pursuing a relationship with one of Stacy's co-workers, and the two cops stopped by the hotel often. Drew Peterson began taking an interest in the pretty petite girl. She was flattered by his attention, and soon they began a romantic relationship. Stacy didn't mind that Drew Peterson was 30 years her senior, nor it appears that he was a married man with four children. His oldest two children from a previous marriage were older than Stacy. But Stacy overlooked all these obstacles, eager for the safety and security Drew Peterson represented to her. Most likely because of her unstable home life growing up, Stacy had sought out romantic partners who were much older than herself. While she was still in high school, 16-year-old Stacy dated a 29-year-old man for a couple of months until he joined the Army and left for basic training. But Drew Peterson would be far from the stable harbor of safety Stacy craved. Instead, he would bring nothing but additional chaos and pain. Ultimately, trusting Drew Peterson would end up costing Stacy her life. Drew Walter Peterson was born on January 4, 1954, and grew up in Willowbrook, Illinois. After graduating from Willowbrook High School, Peterson joined the Army. He attended military police training in Virginia before returning to Illinois, where he was hired as an auxiliary officer for the Will County Sheriff's Department. He would spend 30 years in law enforcement, rising to the rank of sergeant in the Bolingbrook Police Department. Peterson would be recognized as Police Officer of the Year in 1979. By the time Peterson met Stacy Kales, he'd already been married and divorced twice and was on his third marriage. Two years after graduating high school, Peterson married his high school sweetheart, Carol Hamilton. Their marriage lasted just six years. Carol learned, as all his wives and girlfriends would, that Peterson had a wandering eye. His first wife discovered he was having an affair and filed for divorce. When the divorce was granted in 1980, Drew and Carol shared custody of their two sons, Stephen and Eric. Two years later, 28-year-old Drew married 23-year-old Vicki Rutkowitz. Together, they opened a business, a neighborhood tavern. Vicki would later testify that during their 10-year marriage, Peterson was controlling and abusive. She said that her police officer husband had threatened that he could kill her and make it look like an accident, which would become an oft-repeated threat by Peterson. He began seeing another woman, Kathleen Savio, while married to Vicky. His second wife filed for divorce in 1992. Two months after their divorce was finalized, Peterson married Kathleen. By this time, a pattern had emerged in Peterson's life. He'd quickly enter into marriages, then just as quickly begin extramarital affairs with younger women. With each succession, the women grew younger. Vicky had been five years Peterson's junior. There was a 10-year difference between Kathy and Drew. The couple had two children together. Thomas was born in 1993 and Christopher in 1994. Peterson was now the father of four boys from two marriages. 
By all accounts, Peterson was a doting father who loved his boys and enjoyed spending time with them when he wasn't away at work or too busy juggling multiple women. This pattern would continue into his third marriage as well. Drew Peterson began each new relationship by turning on the charm to land his latest love interest. But as soon as the couple married, a new side to him would emerge. Peterson became extremely controlling and rabidly jealous as each of his relationships progressed. Perhaps because he was a law enforcement officer used to wielding power on his job, Peterson expected to rule with the same kind of authority at home. He wanted complete control over every aspect of his personal life, including the couple's finances, how the children were raised, and even who his wife was allowed to associate with and what she was allowed to wear. When he wasn't obeyed, Peterson would fly into a rage, threatening his wife and terrorizing her. Kathy Savio was an educated and self-confident woman. She resented Peterson's controlling behavior and didn't keep her feelings to herself. This led to frequent fights and arguments in the home. While still trying to control his wife Kathy, Drew Peterson had already begun an affair with Stacy. Drew would leave Kathy for Stacy, but continued to try and control his ex by dictating the conditions of their divorce. He was fighting Kathy's request for child support, the visitation schedule, and the control of their financial assets. Peterson was making a good salary as a police officer and could easily have compensated his soon-to-be ex-wife fairly. But he, number one, didn't like being told what to do, especially by a woman, and two, had already begun a new life with Stacy. Peterson took the attitude that his ex-wife was simply a burden. He no longer wanted her, so why should he be bothered to provide her with anything was his attitude. As Kathy's attorney fought for her interests, Peterson became more enraged. He took it out on Kathy by showing up at her home and threatening her. He ignored the visitation schedule to share custody of his children. Kathy often had to track him down when the boys were with him. He would show up hours late, or not at all, to return the children to Kathy. Peterson also dragged Stacy into this chaos. He'd make sure to bring her along when picking up his boys, prominently flaunting his young girlfriend in front of his jilted wife. He enjoyed humiliating Kathy, calling her names, and just being a first-class jerk whenever she was forced to interact with him. The divorce proceedings dragged on with Peterson becoming more angry and belligerent, not wanting to give an inch. He decided his best bet to get Kathy to back off her demands was to threaten and terrorize her even more. Between 2002 and 2004, when their divorce was granted, police were called to Kathy Savio's home 18 times. These domestic disturbance calls were responded to by the officers who worked alongside Sergeant Drew Peterson himself. Somewhat predictably, no charges were ever filed. Kathy's sister, Susan Doman, would report seeing marks and bruises on her sister's body during this time. Kathy had shared with Susan that one night she awoke to find Drew in her bedroom. He was dressed all in black and held a knife to her throat. Kathy documented every instance of abuse, threats, and violence by Peterson in writing. When she realized she would never get the Bolingbroke Police Department to charge one of their own with domestic violence or even make him stay away from her, she decided to go to the Illinois State Police. On November 14, 2002, Kathy wrote a letter to Will County Assistant State's Attorney Elizabeth Fergell outlining Drew Peterson's threats and abuse. She wrote of her fear that her ex-husband would kill her. Peterson was contacted and interviewed, but it seems he was able to convince the authorities that he and Kathy Savio were just going through a messy divorce. He said she was jealous of his new relationship 
and trying to get revenge by making false accusations. She's crazy, he reportedly told the state's attorney. Why records weren't reviewed to prove how often the Bolingbroke Police Department had responded to domestic disturbance calls at the Peterson residence to back up Kathy's claims is unknown. Kathy seemed to become resigned to the idea that nobody would help her. She became convinced her ex was planning to kill her and told her sister, Sue, I have this feeling like I'm not going to make it. Drew told me he's going to kill me and make it look like an accident. Kathy made her sister promise that if anything happened to her, she would take care of her children. Just months later, Kathy Savio would be found dead. Stacy Kells was looking to Drew Peterson for safety and security, but instead was dragged into the middle of his bitter divorce. Still, she believed she was in love with him and also quickly fell in love with his two boys. Thomas and Christopher were just eight and nine when she entered their lives. Peterson treated Stacy well at first. She'd always barely skated by financially growing up, but now Drew provided everything she needed, clothing, a car, and a roof over her head. He took her on trips and out to nice restaurants and showered her with gifts. Stacy thought she'd met the man of her dreams. They talked about marriage, and Stacy was thrilled that he wanted to spend his life with her. But first, he said, he had to convince Kathy to settle their divorce quickly so they could tie the knot. But in the spring of 2003, while the divorce was still pending, Stacy discovered she was pregnant. She gave birth to their son, Anthony, in July. On October 10th, Drew and Kathy's divorce was granted. One week later, on October 18th, Stacy married Drew Peterson. She was 19, he was 49. Stacy Peterson's life fell into a predictable pattern. She stayed home with her newborn son and also took the lead in parenting her stepsons while Drew was at work. Stacy enjoyed being a mom more than anything else. If there was anything to mar her domestic bliss, it was that Drew was still battling with Kathy. Their marriage had legally ended, but the distribution of assets was not yet resolved. Drew was growing increasingly hostile at the idea of sharing with his ex-wife any part of what he considered his assets. Stacy and Drew Peterson had been married for five months in February of 2004. Peterson was scheduled to have his boys over the weekend of the 27th. That Friday evening, Drew and Stacy picked up his children from their mother's house. Peterson was not scheduled to work that weekend, and they spent Saturday together at home. On Sunday, Drew took Stacy and the boys to visit the aquarium. At about 8 p.m., the time the boys were scheduled to return to their mother's house, Drew drove them home. He knocked on the door, but there was no answer. After a few minutes of knocking, he decided to return home with the boys. Drew called Kathy's house several times that night and then the next day, but again, she did not answer. He was scheduled to work on Monday and left for his shift about 5 p.m. While on duty, he decided to stop by Kathy's house once more. When she still didn't answer, Drew knocked on her neighbor's door. He'd been friendly with them before he and Kathy split. He told them what was happening and said he needed to call a locksmith to see if they could gain entry into the house. The door was finally unlocked and the neighbors went inside while Peterson remained in the front yard. He heard a scream and ran into the house where Kathy's body was found in the master bedroom bathtub. The Bolingbroke police were called. They found Kathy nude and lying face down her arms held close to her body. Her body was in almost a fetal position with her feet slightly tucked up to her chest and crossed at the ankles. 
the tub was dry. The Illinois State Police was brought in to investigate. The coroner noted that a laceration an inch long was found on the back of Kathy's head, soaking her hair with blood. Her tongue was partially clenched between her teeth, and several small bruises and abrasions were found on her body. He would classify the bruising on her body as old wounds. A six-person coroner's jury was impaneled to hear the details of Savio's death to determine if a crime had occurred. Kathleen's family was called to testify. They told the jury that Kathy had feared her ex-husband and that he would benefit financially from her death. With Kathy now dead, the entirety of the marriage assets would remain with Peterson. Illinois State Police investigators told the jury that they, quote, had no reason to suspect a homicide, unquote. Kathleen Savio's death was determined to be as a result of accidental drowning, and the case was closed. Not long afterward, Peterson would produce a handwritten will dated March 2, 1997, and signed by both himself and Kathleen. It stated that upon either person's death, they would leave their assets to the other. Kathy's divorce attorney would report that his client told him she never had a will. What Drew Peterson considered the biggest problems in his life, sharing custody of his children and dividing his assets with his ex-wife, disappeared when Kathleen was found dead in her home in what was ruled an accident. Her family was convinced that Drew Peterson was responsible for her death. They had Kathy's own words to lead them to that conclusion. He's going to kill me and make it look like an accident, she had warned them. Now it had come true, and it appeared that Drew Peterson may have gotten away with murder. In January 2005, Stacy gave birth to their second child, a daughter she named Lacey, in honor of her baby sister who died of SIDS in 1987. Stacy was now busy raising four children. She had become the adoptive mother of Drew and Kathy's two boys, Thomas and Christopher, after their mother's tragic death. But now that Stacy was married to Drew and raising their children, Drew's old patterns began to emerge. His possessiveness, jealousy, and verbal abuse were now directed at Stacy. Drew Peterson, a serial philanderer, projected his own unfaithful behavior onto his partners. He was now convinced that Stacy would take any opportunity to cheat on him. He'd make surprise stops at home in the middle of the night while on his shift with the police department. He was convinced he would catch Stacy in the act of sleeping with other men. At first, Stacy thought it must be a joke. She was being run ragged by four kids all day long, including an infant and a toddler. How could he even imagine she'd have the energy to cheat on him, she teased. This only caused Peterson's jealous and irrational brain to suspect her even more. She wasn't outright denying she wasn't screwing around, he said, so that was proof that she was. He made no sense, and Stacy tried to ignore his ridiculous accusations, but Peterson's behavior toward her only became more jealous and controlling. If she went to the grocery store, even with all four kids in tow, he would accuse her of going to meet a guy. He started limiting her time away from home. He also began criticizing her wardrobe. If she wore anything he considered to be too revealing, she wasn't allowed to wear it. Once when she was doing yard work wearing shorts and a halter top, he threw a fit, calling her a slut and worse. Stacy tried to prove to her husband that nothing was going on and she wasn't interested in anyone else, but this only served to enrage him. She was lying to him, he'd insist, and right to his face. She was a no-good lying bitch, he said, before he demanded she give him details of which men she'd been with and where and when. 
Stacy became worn down by Peterson's never-ending complaints and accusations. She regularly attended church, and in the spring of 2007, asked her pastor if he'd meet with her and Drew for marriage counseling. At their meeting, Stacy and Drew Peterson sat across from Neil Shorey while she explained how unhappy she was in the marriage. Her husband was jealous of everyone and everything, and she could not convince him that she wasn't sleeping with other men, she explained. Stacy recounted for Shorey that the previous year, her half-sister Tina had been diagnosed with colon cancer. Stacy had gone to visit her and to help her out as she began receiving cancer treatments. When she returned home, Drew had met her at the front door. He forcibly stripped off all of her clothes as she stood shocked in the entryway. He smelled her from head to foot to determine if she'd had sex while she'd been away. As Stacy shared this humiliation, she sobbed. Neil Shorey said he was struck at how coldly Drew Peterson reacted to his wife's pain, merely sitting and staring at him with his arms crossed. Stacy continued to talk to the pastor about Drew's behavior. Tragically, her sister Tina succumbed to cancer, dying in September of 2006 at the age of 31. She and Drew attended the funeral together. Afterwards, the family gathered together for a reception. Stacy and Tina's husband, devastated over her death, hugged one another in consolation. Drew immediately stomped up to Stacy and accused her of sleeping with her dead sister's husband. Everyone was shocked at his behavior, and Stacy was humiliated once again. When they returned home, he badgered her for hours, trying to get her to admit that she was sleeping with her brother-in-law. Stacy, already spiraling into depression from all the harassment she'd had to endure from her husband and the loss of her sister, finally had had enough. She knew she'd have to find a way to leave her husband. As if sensing Stacy had been pushed to the edge and that she might be planning to leave him, Drew Peterson began keeping even closer tabs and exerting even more control over his wife. In 2007, Stacy Peterson looked thin, exhausted, and depressed. She spoke often with her sister Cassandra, her neighbor Sharon Bykowski, and her pastor Neil Shorey. She told them how unhappy she was in her marriage, and by that fall, she was talking about wanting a divorce. Peterson had begun threatening Stacy, telling her if she ever tried to leave him, he'd kill her. She did not take his threats idly. When her sister asked why she didn't go to the police, she answered, When you're married to the police, the police won't help you. In early October, Stacy's aunt Candace Aiken visited from California. They went on an errand together, but before returning home, Stacy sat in a parking lot with Candace and told her all about what Drew had been putting her through and how much she wanted out of the marriage. Stacy also said that she wanted custody of all four children, including her adopted sons. By this time, Drew's oldest son was 14, and their youngest child together, Lacey, was just two. When her neighbor Sharon expressed concern for her and asked Stacy if she wasn't afraid to ask Drew for a divorce, she said Stacy just seemed tired and almost hopeless. In response, she just sighed and looked at her friend and said, He's going to kill me. I'm already dead. On October 26, 2007, Stacy Peterson asked her husband Drew Peterson for a divorce. She had already packed up boxes of his clothes and began preparing for him to leave. That day, she also called the divorce attorney, the only one Stacy knew, the one who'd represented Kathleen Savio in her divorce against Drew. 
The attorney was surprised to hear from Stacy, who asked him questions about filing for divorce. She also asked him if it was possible to take the children out of state. Her Aunt Candace lived in California, and I suspect Stacy might have been thinking of moving there to get as far away from Peterson as possible. The attorney told her it would be difficult to win permission from the court if Drew contested it, but it wasn't impossible. He then asked if she wasn't afraid her husband would retaliate if he heard her talking to a divorce attorney. He'd been on the other end of Drew Peterson's wrath himself and thought the man was slightly unhinged. The attorney was also one of the many who believed Peterson had had a hand in Kathleen's death. Stacy told him that she had a cell phone that her husband didn't know about and he wasn't home. A few minutes later, he heard Drew Peterson yelling in the background and the phone went dead. Stacy Peterson would never call the attorney again. The day after Stacy Peterson attempted to contact a divorce attorney, her sister Cassandra spent the day with her. She didn't leave Stacy's house until about 11.30 p.m. They made plans to meet the following morning, on October 28th, at 10 a.m. Cassandra was supposed to paint and Stacy was going to help. The next morning when Stacy didn't show up as scheduled, Cassandra called her house. Drew answered. It sounded as if he'd just woken up, Cassandra said. This wouldn't be unusual as the shift normally ended around 5 a.m. Peterson told Cassandra that he and Stacy had argued and she'd left to visit her grandfather. Peterson would later say that he'd returned home from his shift about 5.30 a.m. They had gotten into an argument and Stacy told him she was going to visit her grandfather and would be back later. He'd then fallen asleep. The children woke him around 10 a.m. to tell him their mother was gone. He gave them breakfast and stayed with them until about 1 p.m. Peterson said he then left to run some errands, leaving the two older children to watch the two younger. That afternoon at 2 p.m., he called into work to take the night off. He explained that he had a lot of sick time accrued and wanted to use some of it before his planned retirement in December. At 9 p.m., Drew Peterson said he received a call from Stacy. She told him she'd left him for another man. Records would show a call placed from Stacy's cell phone to Drew's around that time. He left his home at 9.15 p.m. to look for Stacy, Drew would later report. He returned home about 11. His sister-in-law, Cassandra, had been trying to reach him all day, frantic for information about Stacy. She'd driven to his house shortly before Drew returned and had just missed him. She had not seen either his car or Stacy's in the driveway. She called him again once she arrived home, finally reaching him at 11.15 p.m. He told her that Stacy had left him. Her clothes, some money, and her passport were gone. He'd walked to Clo International Airport to retrieve her car. Cassandra went to the Bolingbroke police to report her sister missing. At 2.30 a.m., officers called Peterson to inform him that a report had been filed by Stacy's sister. The following morning, Peterson arrived at their neighbor Sharon's house. He told her friend that Stacy had run off with another man. No one who knew Stacy Peterson believed her husband's story that she'd taken off with another man and had left her children behind. It was ludicrous, they said. Stacy's children were her life, not just her biological children, but her two stepsons as well, who she loved like her own. It was unfathomable that she would abandon them and just disappear. Stacy knew firsthand the pain of having a mother go missing and being left behind with no answers. 
There was no way she'd put her own children through that kind of pain on purpose. Also, no one believed that Drew Peterson would take his wife leaving him for another man so calmly either. They'd all seen how jealous and possessive he was with Stacy, as if she were his property. That he would simply accept this type of news so calmly, retrieve her car, and do nothing to stop her was also unbelievable. Stacy's sister Cassandra was immediately gripped by fear for her sister. She had heard directly from Stacy how her husband had threatened her. She also knew, as a Bolingbroke police officer himself, the local police were most likely not inclined to take her report seriously. By 3.30 a.m., the morning after Stacy went missing, Cassandra was on the phone to the Illinois State Police. She filed a missing persons report with that department as well. They immediately began questioning Stacy's friends and family, who told them what they'd heard from Drew, that Stacy had left voluntarily. They also told investigators that they didn't believe a word of it. Drew Peterson was also interviewed. He cooperated and gave the same story to them that he had to everyone else. He allowed them to look around his home, but nothing seemed out of place. He also allowed them to search his SUV, but drew the line at giving permission for them to enter Stacy's car. A widespread search began within the first 48 hours. There are a series of canals around Bolingbrook. Search teams led by team leader Roy Taylor began combing the ground and these waterways on foot and by air. Tracking dogs were also employed. As the search got underway, investigators continued to interview all those who knew either Stacy or Drew Peterson. They heard that Stacy was afraid of her husband and was convinced he would try to kill her if she left him. People also shared with investigators that they believed that Peterson's third wife's death had been no accident. They told of their suspicions that Kathleen Savio had been killed by her ex-husband. The state's attorney had the file on Savio's case pulled for review. Then investigators got a phone call about an attempted suicide that had occurred on the night after Stacy was reported missing. Thomas Morphy, Drew Peterson's stepbrother, had been admitted to the hospital after attempting to take his own life by overdosing on prescription pills. Not long before, he had called both a friend and his girlfriend. Morphy was very distressed and despondent and had told them he thought he may have just helped his brother get rid of his wife Stacy's body. On the evening of October 30th, two days after Stacy Peterson was last seen alive, and one day after Thomas Morphy attempted suicide, investigators interviewed him in his hospital bed. Morphy told the following story. On October 27th, the day before Stacy went missing, Drew Peterson arrived at Morphy's house. Peterson told him he was taking him to a job interview he'd arranged, but instead drove him to a local park. Drew began telling Morphy that his wife was cheating on him and that he, quote, needed to take care of the problem, end quote. He then asked Morphy if he loved him. Morphy said he did. Peterson then asked, enough to kill for me? Morphy said he didn't think he could live with himself if he killed someone. Peterson asked if he could live with knowing about it. Morphy said he thought he could. Peterson then drove his stepbrother to a storage facility where he told him to rent a unit. But Morphy was turned away because he didn't have proper identification with him. Peterson then drove him home. A few hours later, Morphy called his stepbrother and told him he couldn't be involved in whatever he was planning. Peterson said he could respect that. But the next evening, Peterson returned and picked up Morphy again. 
They got coffee in a Starbucks drive-thru, a transaction which was caught on video, and Peterson then drove Morphe to a different park than the one they'd gone to the previous day. He handed Morphe a cell phone and told him not to answer it when it rang. Leaving Morphe at the park, Peterson drove away. About 45 minutes later, the phone rang. Morphe looked at the caller ID, which indicated that Stacy was calling. About an hour after the call came in, Peterson returned to pick up Morphe. He asked his stepbrother to help him move something at his house. When they arrived, it was after 10 p.m. Peterson told him to be quiet as the children were sleeping. Morphe noticed that all the bedroom doors were closed. Peterson pushed a large blue container, a barrel, out of his bedroom, and Morphe helped him carry it down the stairs and place it into the back of Peterson's SUV. Morphe said the blue barrel was, quote, warm to the touch, end quote. Peterson then drove him home, handed him some cash, and said, this never happened, before driving away. Morphe couldn't stop thinking about what he'd done and drove to his friend Walter Marinick's house to talk to him. He said he thought he had just helped his brother dispose of Stacy's body. The next day, Morphe called Peterson. He was extremely upset and told Peterson he wanted to hang himself. Peterson told him not to worry, that everything would be okay, before hanging up. Morphe began drinking heavily before calling another brother. His brother advised him to call the FBI. Morphe, very agitated now, hung up. His brother called 911 to ask for paramedics to be sent to Morphe's house. They arrived soon after he'd swallowed the pills and rushed him to the hospital, most likely saving his life. The following day, Peterson arrived at Morphe's house and his girlfriend told him about the suicide attempt. He went to the hospital to talk to his brother. Morphe would tell police investigators that he didn't remember much of what was said during that meeting as he was still quite woozy. Soon after Drew Peterson left the hospital, investigators arrived and interviewed Morphe, who confessed to what he knew. Morphe was offered immunity by the Will County State's attorney, James Glasgow, to testify against his stepbrother. But another person would come forward with more information about Drew Peterson's activities. Neil Shorey, Stacy's pastor, would share with investigators a private conversation he'd had with Stacy back in August of that year. Shorey said that Stacy had tearfully confessed to him that she knew her husband had killed his former wife, Kathleen Savio. On March 1, 2004, Stacy had awoken when she heard Drew return home after midnight. She went downstairs and saw him in the laundry room. He was wearing black clothes from head to toe and carrying a duffel bag. When she asked him where he'd been, he answered, You know where I was. He then emptied the contents of the duffel bag into the washing machine. Stacy saw that they were women's clothes, but didn't belong to her. Drew and Stacy Peterson were both interviewed by police after Kathleen was found dead. Stacy admitted to the pastor that her husband had coached her and told her what to say so it matched his account. When Shori asked Stacy why she hadn't reported this to police, she said that her husband was the police, so they wouldn't help her. She also said that she now knew he was capable of killing if someone got in his way and she was terrified she'd be next. Investigators now believed that Drew Peterson had decided to make his wife, Stacy, disappear for two reasons. She was planning to leave him, which he could not abide, and she may have threatened to reveal what she knew about Kathleen's death if he did not let her go.
Drew Peterson was officially named as a suspect in Stacy's disappearance. But thus far, no sign of her had been found. State's attorney James Glasgow also reopened an investigation into Kathleen Savio's death. Peterson was suspended from the police force without pay, while another unrelated investigation was being conducted by internal affairs. But on November 12th, Peterson handed in his letter of resignation to the Bolingbroke PD, just shy of his 30th anniversary with the department and one day before he was to meet with internal affairs. The chief of police refused to accept his resignation, knowing he was trying to skate on the serious job-related violations being leveled against him. The commission would later rule they had no choice but to accept his resignation, taking him out of the reach of the internal affairs investigation. Peterson was still eligible to draw a pension of over $72,000 in annual benefits. But he now had a bigger problem. On November 13, 2007, Kathleen Savio's body was exhumed from the Queen of Heaven Cemetery. Two separate forensic pathologists would conduct autopsies on her body. Kathleen's family had hired Michael Bodden, a well-known and respected medical examiner from New York City. He would conclude that Kathleen had died of drowning after a struggle. His examination revealed bruising and abrasions to Kathleen's back, torso, and face, inconsistent with a fall in a bathtub and a single blow to the head. He also found deep bruising on her chest muscles, as well as one near the front of her hip bone. The bruising was so deep, it had gone all the way to the bone. This, Bodden said, would be consistent with being held over the tub, facing down, while her head was held underwater. Her legs could have also been forced against the wall of the outside of the tub, causing the hip bruise. He determined Kathleen's manner of death to be homicide. The second independent pathologist hired by the state also ruled Savio's death a homicide. While the state built its case against Drew Peterson for Kathleen's murder, the search for Stacy Peterson continued. He had not yet been charged with the crime, and news outlets had come in droves to report on the missing young mother and the allegations that Drew Peterson was responsible for both her disappearance and his former wife's death. Instead of staying hidden from sight to avoid the press, Peterson appeared to revel in the attention. He not only gave interviews to news reporters, but also agreed to appear on programs like The Today Show and Larry King Live. Reporters and photographers camped outside of his home for more sound bites. Peterson treated it all like a joke, hamming it up for the cameras. He smirked while insisting that Kathleen had died as a result of an accident, and Stacy had abandoned him and her children to go off with a mystery lover. Finally, on May 7, 2009, Drew Peterson was arrested and charged with the murder of Kathleen Savio. He pled not guilty and was held on a $20 million bond. Prosecutor James Glasgow now revealed that the state had uncovered evidence that Peterson had previously attempted to hire a hitman to kill Kathleen. Glasgow criticized his predecessor in the state's attorney's office for doing what amounted to nothing to investigate Kathleen's murder. While Drew Peterson sat in jail awaiting trial, his oldest son, Stephen, who'd followed in his father's footsteps and become a police officer, was dismissed from the Oak Brook PD for obstructing the investigation into his stepmother's disappearance. Investigators claimed that the day after Stacy Peterson went missing, Drew Peterson gave guns to his son to hide for him, as well as over $200,000 in cash. Peterson's defense attorneys also tried to block a television movie based on his case from being aired. They were unsuccessful, and the Lifetime Network movie, Drew Peterson, Untouchable, aired in January 2012. 
It starred Rob Lowe as Drew Peterson and Kaylee Cuoco as Stacy. Peterson's trial for the murder of Kathleen Savio began on July 31, 2012, more than nine years after her death. Records Kathleen had made and conversations she'd had with others about the abuse inflicted upon her by Peterson, as well as his threats to end her life and, quote, make it look like an accident, helped make the prosecution's case. Neil Shorey testified about what Stacy Peterson told him about the night Kathleen died. Peterson's attorneys objected to this testimony, saying it was hearsay, but the judge allowed it to be heard. On September 6, 2012, Drew Peterson was found guilty of first-degree murder. Glasgow made a statement to the press immediately after the verdict was announced. He's a thug, the prosecutor said about Peterson. He thought he could threaten people because he had a badge and a gun, and nobody ever took him on. We took him on, and we won. On February 1st of 2013, Peterson's motion for a new trial was denied. Kathy's family read victim impact statements in court. Peterson, allowed to take the stand to make a statement before sentencing, bellowed, I did not kill Kathleen before giving a long, self-pitying statement protesting his innocence. He was sentenced to 38 years and sent to the Menard Correctional Facility. This case is a little different from the previous two I covered on Body of Evidence, in that Peterson was not convicted of a no-body murder. Stacy Peterson has never been found, nor has Peterson yet been charged in her disappearance. However, Peterson's suspected involvement in Stacy's disappearance led directly to his conviction for the murder of his ex-wife. And what about Stacy Peterson? What do people believe happened to the blue barrel that Thomas Morphy suspected held her body? In 2018, former prosecutor Marsha Clark reinvestigated Stacy Peterson's case on the television program Marsha Clark Investigates the First 48. It provided additional details never before revealed and may have solved the question of what happened to Stacy's body. Clark interviewed Roy Taylor, the search team coordinator who led an 18-month effort to find Stacy Peterson. He believed that Thomas Morphy was telling the truth about the blue barrel that he helped Drew Peterson remove from his home. The search team dragged large portions of the canal starting near where cadaver dogs had gotten a hit on Stacy's scent. They retrieved no less than 60 blue barrels from the depths of the canal. None contained a body or anything linked to Stacy. Of course, Drew Peterson would have most likely removed the body from the blue barrel if he'd taken it to the canal. As we learned in the Anne Marie Fahey case, it's very unlikely the barrel would have sunk in water. Taylor and his team then hired a nonprofit group to conduct an underwater sonar search. A sonar image of what appeared to be a woman's body was seen on the bottom of the canal 19 days after Stacy went missing. The image was then given to the state police. Instead of sending a team to try and locate and retrieve what may have been Stacy's body, they passed it along to another sonar team hired by the state. They discarded the image and declined to take further action. The first team tracked the image for four days as the body continued to move out into deeper water. On the fifth day, the image disappeared. Taylor explained to Marsha Clark that as the body decomposes, it becomes more buoyant as the body's natural gases build up inside it. He speculated that the wake from a tugboat could have pulled the body out further, and its six-foot propeller blades may have chopped it into pieces. The search team did find pieces of a chopped-up blue barrel in a part of the canal that had not yet been dragged. 
At this point, the search of the canals ended. Then, a barge crew was sent out to clean a large area of debris in the canal. The crew found a body, or what was left of one. Several large pieces of bone were found, including a pelvis, spinal bone, and a scapula. It was also reported that underwear manufactured by Victoria's Secret was found on the body. Stacy's sister verified that the clothing article was a brand and size that Stacy wore. The search team returned to the canal where the first bones were found and were able to recover even more. A tibia and humerus bone were found. The tibia was sent to a forensic pathologist in Will County, who identified it as belonging to a female. Taylor then contacted the Illinois State Police. The state police had been less than cooperative with the search team, according to Taylor. He said he'd had difficulty from day one getting them to share any information or even respond to his calls for assistance. Taylor gave over custody of the humerus bone to the state's forensic lab. When results finally came back and were shared with Taylor, he was informed that it was their determination that the bone belonged to a male, not a female. Furthermore, their report stated that the women's underwear had been found near the body, not on the body. How they could determine this, seeing as they were not the ones who conducted the search or discovered the bones, is beyond me. Finally, the state police reported that they had DNA evidence identifying the individual whom the remains belonged to. However, they would never make this identity public, nor did they confirm or deny for Stacy's family that the remains belonged to her. However, Roy Taylor believes that it was Stacy Peterson's remains that were found in the canal. But we can't be sure of this. Marsha Clark also interviewed Drew Peterson's former defense attorney, Joel Brodsky. When asked what he thought happened to Stacy, Brodsky answered, I know what happened to Stacy. After several moments where he appeared to try and determine how best to answer, citing attorney-client privilege, he simply ended the conversation by saying that after Drew Peterson's death, Stacy would be found. What did he mean by she would be found? Is it possible that Drew Peterson had his lawyer draw up a document to be released only upon his death, confessing to her murder and the location of the body? Does this mean that she was not dumped in the bay, or perhaps buried somewhere else? I still wonder about the storage unit he wanted his stepbrother, Thomas Morphy, to rent. Is she perhaps concealed in a place like this, or another random location where she was buried? It takes a truly evil person to end the life of his children's mother, and then not allow them or anyone else to have answers to her disappearance and likely death. At this point, Drew Peterson knows he will never get out of prison. He'd lose nothing by telling the truth now. Except, of course, the knowledge that he's still the only one who knows exactly what happened to Stacy Peterson. After Drew Peterson was sentenced to 38 years in prison, he attempted to place a hit on state's attorney, James Glasgow. He was charged with solicitation of murder and solicitation of murder for hire. On May 31, 2016, Peterson was found guilty on these charges and sentenced to an additional 40 years in prison. The following month, Peterson's $79,000 annual police pension was revoked. In 2017, the Illinois Supreme Court upheld his 2012 murder conviction. He has been transferred twice, 
first to the Terre Haute Federal Correctional Institution for being a, quote, threat to safety and security of the department, end quote. He was recently transferred to an unidentified out-of-state prison. Finally, what happened to Stacy and Drew Peterson's children? In total, Drew Peterson had six children from three marriages. His two oldest children with Carol Hamilton, Stephen and Eric, were adults when their father was charged with murder. Eric had been estranged from his father for several years. Stephen, who I mentioned earlier, had become a police officer and was later fired for withholding evidence after Stacy went missing, moved into Drew and Stacy's home to raise the four younger siblings, Thomas and Christopher, Kathy Savio's sons, and Anthony and Lacey, Stacy's children. Kathleen's sons were 15 and 16 when Peterson was arrested. Anthony was just six and Lacey four. As Kathleen's sons became young adults, they went out on their own to attend college or begin careers. In 2017, Stephen Peterson was still raising his two youngest siblings, who were in middle school by that time. Stephen believed, or made himself believe, for years that his father was innocent in the death of Kathleen and the disappearance of Stacy. He now admits his father probably murdered both Kathleen and Stacy. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. It's your last chance to get tickets to CrimeCon House Arrest, which will stream live this coming Saturday, November 21st. You can visit me and a whole bunch more of your favorite podcasters on our virtual podcast row, as well as take part in workshops, experiences, and view presentations by Josh Mankiewicz, Keith Morrison, Paul Holes, and Dr. Michael Bodden, who made an appearance in this episode. Get your tickets and more information at crimecon.com slash house arrest, and I'll see you there. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another.